This is a special edition of Macro Voices with hedge fund manager Eric Townsend, the premier financial podcast targeting professional finance, high net worth individuals, family offices, and other sophisticated investors. Now, for this special edition of Macro Voices, here's hedge fund manager Eric Townsend. Macro Voices Energy Week, Episode 15, was recorded on August 14th, 2019. I'm Eric Townsend. We're going to be giving our editing and production staff a well-deserved holiday for the last two weeks of August, so this will be the last episode of Energy Week this month. We'll be back to our regular schedule every Wednesday night starting September 4th. I'll be joined this week by author and consultant Anas Alhaji, professional crude oil trader Tracy Shukart, and Hedgeye Energy Research Head Joe McMonigle. Our topics this week will include the Saudi Aramco IPO, supply demand outlook, geopolitical update, and even an update on the spread topic, which I introduced last week and which remains a mystery. So far, it's gone unsolved. Perhaps one of our listeners will be able to explain it to us. But first, let's dive right into the EIA data. Crude oil building 1.6 million barrels. Another build this week, unexpected by most analysts, but Cushing, Oklahoma, drawing down 2.5 million barrels. Gasoline drawing down 1.4 million barrels. Distillates drawing down 1.9 million barrels. So overall, we had a crude build, but it was offset by drawdowns in finished products. The tape action was a quick little bit of indecision, but then down pretty hard. Uh, it was a very big down day, but the last half hour or so of trading saw a big bounce of more than a dollar, and that ended up taking us right back up to the 13-day moving average. So it's really an undecided direction in the market at this point. U.S. production unchanged at 12.3 million barrels, imports 7.7 million barrels per day, exports back up to 2.7 million barrels per day. Now let's meet this week's expert panel. Dr. Anas Alhaji is an author, keynote speaker, and energy markets expert. He was formerly the chief economist for NGP Energy Capital Management and also taught energy economics at the University of Oklahoma and Colorado School of Mines. Anas, I'd like to tap your experience on Saudi Arabia this week. Please give us your outlook on how the Saudis will react to lower oil prices, what their logic will be, and what would you expect from them in the event that we actually get a full-on recession? Well, Eric, as you know, Almost everyone in the financial markets and in the oil industry is wondering what is the minimum price that the Saudis will accept in the market. But everyone talked about guesses and people who met the Saudis will say something and people who did not meet them will say something. People will link it to the budget, etc. Now we know. Saudis last week reacted swiftly to stop the decline in oil prices when Brent declined below $60 and the decline was large enough. The reason I think why they reacted this way, because they used all their frontline defenses in recent months, and prices continue to decline, which means that they have to go now to their second line of defenses if they need really to prevent further decline in oil prices. Now, last week they announced that they will do, in a sense, whatever needed to prevent prices from declining. Originally, they announced an increase in nominations in September by 700,000 barrels a day 
above August. Now they decided to reverse that. So they, they decided to keep September exports at the same level of August. This is very significant. And the reason why it's significant for those who are not familiar with nominations, it means actual demand that people are reaching out to you, signing, in a sense, contract with you, asking you for that oil and pay you for it. That's different from a production cut. So it means that they are really taking oil when there is demand for it. And therefore, the impact of that on the market is larger than the usual production cut. The timing of the announcement was very, very interesting for several reasons. It seems that the decision to reduce exports in September and react to prices was made when the Saudi energy minister and his team were in D.C. meeting with the U.S. energy secretary, probably before it, but at the same time they were in D.C., so it is possible that they convinced the Trump administration that the recent decline in oil prices is not good for everyone, and therefore they are not going to get a red flag from Trump if they do something and prices go up. It also happened when they announced that Aramco IPO will proceed on schedule and probably earlier than expected. It happened just a few days before the public conference call for the half-year results for Aramco. As you all know, Aramco generated massive profit, but it was 12% less than before. This decline by 12% shows the importance of higher prices for the company and for the Saudis. On a final note regarding the IPO versus oil prices, we heard, all of us heard this before. Many people were saying that the Saudis wanted to cut production jack up prices so they can get more money for the IPO. They forget that the worst thing to happen after an IPO is for the price of the stock to decline. And what is even worse is for the decline to be a continuous decline. That would be a big slap on the face if this happened. So the idea that they want to jack up prices just to get the money from the IPO and that's it does not make sense here. They want to, to have the IPO, they want prices to increase gradually, and at the same time, they want Aramco profitability to increase over time so investors will be happy and the IPO is successful. Therefore, and I will end with this statement, Eric, there is a long-term objective here, and it's not a short-term. Thanks so much for that, Anas. Our next panelist is Joe McMonigle, a former chief of staff at the U.S. Department of Energy and former vice chairman of the International Energy Agency. Joe regularly attends OPEC meetings and is a frequent commentator on oil markets for many major media outlets. Joe, let's continue on the tack Anna started on. OPEC extended its production cuts into the first quarter of 2020 at the last meeting and formalized its relationship with non-OPEC partners, yet oil prices have still declined since that June meeting. The Vienna Group and the Saudis can't be happy with the current prices. Now, Joe, there is a key OPEC committee, and on September 12th, they're going to have the first meeting since the price slide began. Uh, what do you think the real objective is for that meeting, and how will OPEC address this price decline from your perspective? 
Thanks, Eric. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the JMMC meeting in Abu Dhabi on September 12th will be the first meeting since the full OPEC plus meeting in Vienna in early July when they they took, you know, the steps of uh, extending the production cuts through the first quarter of 2020 when, you know, demand is lower and more supply traditionally comes comes on board. So they were trying to get ahead of the game. And also they they formalized the relationship with the non-OPEC partners. So that's now more of an ongoing concern when there, there had been a little, I think, uh, question mark about how long that might continue. So both of those steps I, I thought were quite bullish and were strong steps by, by OPEC. But as you point out, the prices have, have uh, declined since since then. And so, you know, I expect the focus will be on compliance because the JMMC, for those who don't follow this as closely as we do, might not recognize the acronym. It's the Joint Ministerial Monitoring Committee. So it's a subcommittee of OPEC whose main job is to monitor compliance and make recommendations to the full OPEC group on, on next steps. But I think, you know, that, so that's their day job. I think their night job is, is something that I, I expect more sort of trial balloons and jawboning about additional steps that need to be taken, whether it's uh, additional supply cuts or measures uh, that ANAS just, just reviewed on, on stricter nominations, which I agree would be a more effective alternative. But, you know, the, the Saudis are really going to their break glass in case of emergency plan here, because as, as Anas pointed out, the frontline measures that they took really have not, prices have not really responded to them. And that's because fundamentals are really no longer at play in the oil market. It's, it's OPEC has really lost the narrative to the tr- China trade issue and to some extent forecasts about declining demand. And we can get into that later. But, you know, for example, geopolitical risks, which, you know, one of these several events that we're dealing with right now, whether it's the Iran situation in terms of sanctions and cutting off, you know, and reducing their their exports to the global market, whether it's Iran's misbehavior at maximum chaos, as I call it, in the Strait of Hormuz, to try to apply pressure to the Trump administration's maximum pressure policy or it's what's going on in Venezuela, or you could go down the list. There's a bunch of things to talk about. Any one of those in the past would have really resulted in a corresponding spike in, in oil prices. But in, in today's concerns about the China trade issue, which really fuels a lot of macroeconomic concerns, these fundamentals are just really, um, the market sort of yawns at them. So that's why I think you know, geopolitical risks today are are downgraded at best in that the market either, you know, doesn't believe the U.S. or Iran will have any kind of military conflict or, or war, or they're not even priced in at all today. But I, I think there's there was a little bit of, of, you know, a glimmer of hope, I think, that we saw this week for OPEC. And that's because we, we started to hear something we heard a couple years ago from Continental Resources CEO Harold Ham, who, who in a speech in Denver suggested that OPEC and U.S. shale producers should cut, should make additional cuts to production and, and to not get into some kind of oversupply period here. And 
you know, he's not just any CEO in, in the U.S. Um, energy sector. He's, he's a big Trump supporter and a key Trump advisor on, on oil and gas issues. And he hasn't really said this, you know, since Trump's been in office. So this is the first time we've heard this. He's, he's said it in the past in similar situations when prices have declined. And now he's, he's starting to say it again. So OPEC has, can point to, you know, a key leader in the U.S. shale sector also uh, warning about oversupply. And I think you'll, you'll hear that probably repeated in Abu Dhabi when, when OPEC meets in mid-September. Thanks, Joe. And our final panelist is Tracy Shukart, a professional crude oil trader who used to work on the floor of the exchange in Chicago before moving on to trade her own account full time. Tracy, you sit in front of a trading screen all day. From a trader's perspective, what do you think the market is most concerned about? Is it the supply demand outlooks or is it the the risk of the trade war and the, the Donald Trump tweets or is it the OPEC action or Saudi policy. There's so many different candidates. What do you think is really driving the market? And also just building on what Anas and Joe said, what's your perspective on the Saudis' ability at this point to support prices if they want to? Yeah, so I kind of wanted to go over, and this does kind of piggyback onto um, what both Anas and Joe have said, but I kind of wanted to go over, I mean, we've kind of had a lot of price action these, you know, since uh, really the first. So I wanted to go over kind of break this down into two parts. First, I want to go over like what has happened in the last 24 hours. So yesterday, the markets clearly rallied on trade hopes with China. Oil was up 4% on Trump saying that tariffs were delayed. Talks were scheduled with China. The market seemed to take a reprieve. Um, even the equity markets were rallying. Then overnight, we had global slowdown fears were replaced, replaced this euphoria with, uh, you know, as recession watchers were watching yield curve inversion happening in the U.S. and Europe, and that we saw bad industrial production data come out of China, and we sort of saw, saw this market recede overnight. Then this morning, this was further exacerbated when they had Ross and Navarro come out, and they kind of dashed hopes by saying no trade talks were scheduled, it was premature to say where we are, and we saw, you know, a further decline in oil prices, Almost the low today, I think, was 6%. We ended up closing up from that around minus 3.22% on the day. So clearly, the market is very sensitive to sort of recession fears and uh, this trade talks. Now, on the other side of this, if we look at um, like the supply-demand side of the equation, now we have OPEC came in, their July figures came in at 29.42 million barrels per day, which is the lowest since uh, 2011. Uh, Saudi Arabia exports have been down from one point was 1 million, we're down to 400,000, give or take. And they actually said that they would even be decreasing that further. And no less than 24 hours after this information came out, which is rather bullish information, you know, the markets dropped $5. So clearly, you know, we can tell by recent price action that the market is more concerned with trade wars than actual supply or demand or geopolitical issues, which, by the way, geopolitical issues have, have not gone away. But the major powers seem to be more concerned with domestic issues right now. So I'm not really sure how much that Saudi Arabia or OPEC can say at this point to calm fears. It seems in the near term, 
this supply demand factor is kind of on the back burner and the market is squarely focused on trade wars and global slowdown fares. That said, I mean, I've been talking about this Q3. I thought, you know, oil would be firm. Granted, we, you know, we've been in a large range, but, you know, we've still been in this $50, $60 range, which is pretty good considering everything that has been going on. And the prompt curves in both Brent and WTI remain firmly backwardated. In fact, you know, the whole WTI curve is almost backwardated except for the front month, which is expiring next week. So this is, you know, this is a pretty bullish sign for still the market. It's still a firm sign for the market. Thanks for that, Tracy. We'll be back with our first discussion topic right after this. For our first topic this week, I want to pick up on what Tracy said about supply and demand. Uh, Anas and Joe, why don't we start with Anas. Based on Tracy's comments, what is your outlook on the supply and demand drivers in this market? Eric, it seems like the Saudis are facing a big dilemma right now. IEA and OPEC and others are telling them that demand growth is declining. But the nominations for the Saudi crude is going up. They get the phone call, they get the request, and it's going up. So how are you going to convince the Saudis demand is declining while the demand for the Saudi oil is going up? How are you going to convince the Saudis that demand growth is declining while in today's report, the EIA reported that U.S. oil demand is at record high? If you look at the details of the report, as Tracy mentioned earlier, it's very bullish. And I am still bullish. Here is why. Gasoline imports increased last week, but we have a draw in gasoline. We have no floating storage in Path 3 anymore. All the imports basically are being used. Refinery utilization is disappointing, so the crude input into the refineries declined. But it seems we have a problem with the EIA numbers because we have a refinery in Philadelphia that is closed and they are still counting it. So when they are showing a very low utilization, simply because the total capacity is exaggerated, they should take that number off. Depending on that utilization, basically, it seems that we are going to have draw after draw in in the coming weeks. We have to remember the following, that OPEC historically, with the leadership of Saudi Arabia, have always cut production and cut exports when we have a recession. They cut exports when demand is declining. So that is a given. They will. Just show them the numbers. So that's what the dilemma is. They want to cut because they see prices declining, and then they see demand numbers are very strong, and that's confusing. And that will make the GMMC meeting very difficult on the 12th because what the advice is going to be, is demand declining or it's not declining? But if demand is declining or if we end up with a recession, we are going to see another cut. And regarding Joe's comment earlier about shale cut, whether U.S. producers basically participate in some form of a cut, let's remember that in Canada, the government of Alberta intervened with the power of law and forced producers to cut production. In the United States, all we got to do is for the Texas Railroad Commission is to start denying licenses for flaring. All they got to do is just limit flaring, and then shell producers will participate in production cut. To 
conclude this segment, basically, I am still bullish on oil. Things are getting brighter by the day. Investors are running away from investing in shale. And the whole picture, whether you look at storage, you look at floating storage, you look at what's happening and the numbers of EIA, it is very bullish. Joe McMonigle, supply and demand, what's your perspective? Yeah, so we've had a bunch of gloomy demand forecasts uh, by the different agencies. The IEA reduced its demand this year by 100,000 barrels a day to 1.1 million barrels. And next year, they've reduced it to 1.3 million barrels a day. The EIA lowered demand this year to a million barrels a day, so even lower than, than the IEA. But next year, they've increased uh, demand to 1.43 million barrels a day. But as Anas pointed out, you know, today we had weekly gasoline demand data from, from EIA showing a record number of 9.932 million barrels a day. So we're getting conflicting data inputs, I think, from the forecasting agencies. And of course, OPEC also has, uh, we should point out, I, I think you pointed out, Eric, you know, OPEC has, or maybe Tracy did in her earlier comments that OPEC has, has revised down its demand forecast as well. You know, a lot of these demand forecasts are really based on the macroeconomic picture. So it's, I think we just, I think we just have to accept that in this current atmosphere, the current macro picture, that we're probably going to continue to see, you know, uh, mixed demand forecasts. I think the danger for the market and and especially for prices, I think, is if these forecasts start to go below one million barrels a day. I think if, you know that's a that's a magic threshold, you know. Every, you know, the, the the bullish positioning for prices has always been, you know, that that demand uh, is growing at a million barrels a day. And so, if we if we start to go below that number, I think that could have a, a big, significant uh, psychological effect on markets. And so, I think that's something to to watch. I think the 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 first of all, I think Aramco is very serious about the IPO. I mean, I. I I know the media has, has kind of downplayed the delays from last year, but but they they haven't shelved it. I mean, and it's ready to go. I think there's some renewed enthusiasm behind it. And again, I think it, the timing is it will be very dependent on on prices. But I think they would like to do it. And I, the fact that they're talking about the IPO again and and taking these steps, I think again shows you know the the Saudi commitment. I think, to bolster prices, to do absolutely everything in the wheelhouse to do that. The question is, you know, what are their options? And, and really, it's uh, cut more, as we pointed out, or cut the nominations, which I think would be a clever move. They could go back to the previous strategy and flood the market, no limits. I don't think that's a likely scenario. I think they've learned their lesson on that. Or they could do nothing. And, and wait for uh, either a resolution of the trade issue that's really choking prices or sort of overtaking the, the fundamentals narrative. But, you know, they, they, they could just accept the lower demand forecasts, although that would not be, you know, sort of bullish jawboning. But they, they could just accept lower demand and, and decide to cut more and the and the nomination so they would they they could they could do something on that and and i think that could potentially have a uh, an impact on on prices lastly i just want to say you know there's been a lot of uh, discussion 
based on the the Aramco call about the special dividend to the Saudi government and how that just can't stand or you know so, something needs to be done about that. I mean, look, the Saudis get that. Aramco gets that. I mean, it's not like they're they're in a vacuum. And so, uh, you know, the the dividend I think last year was uh, or 2017 was I think six billion dollars, and last year it was 20 billion. So it was a big differential, and I think that's caused that caused a lot of discussion. But and I, I'm sure they will they will address that and and work it out. But I, I think it's just important to point out that. You know, a special dividend is not really unique. I mean, it's certainly not unique, you know, for a, a national oil company. But even if you look at, you know, investment deals that, that Warren Buffett's involved in, he always works in some kind of special treatment or special dividend based on his investment in a company or in a deal. So it's not really unique to Aramco. I think it does have to be predictable and based on on some calculation but but I just I, I was just sort of amused by all the, the the discussion about the special dividend and how how that is go, is it going to be a big impediment to to the IPO I just don't see that being the case Tracy I want to get your perspective as a trader because a lot of people have felt like okay if there's going to be an IPO on Aramco Clearly, Saudi Arabia has a very strong financial incentive to do everything they possibly can to bid the price of oil up so that that Aramco IPO is more successful. Uh, I kind of have a feeling like that might have worked the first two or three times they said it. But from a trader's perspective, do you think traders are still reacting to, okay, Aramco IPO, that means the price has to go higher? Or is it kind of like, okay, this is this year's IPO rumor, um, is this something you think will actually drive the market? So, no. And like you said, I mean, exactly. I mean, in the past, the first couple of times this came out, you know, the price shot up right away. And it was delayed and delayed. And I think at this point, you know, it's just, I think traders don't, not that they necessarily do or don't believe it's going to happen, but, you know, it's kind of like these tariffs. You know, every other day, you know, we have tariffs or we don't have tariffs. Because it's come up so much, you know, it's not, it's not going to have the same effects that it once did, right? So, you know, we haven't seen price really shoot up because of the mention of this IPO. And again, you know, it's 2020. Right now, there are so many things um, in the macro environment happening that I think in traders' mind, it's kind of on the back burner. It may or may not happen. And there's also the point of view, you know, I've talked to other traders that, you know, I mean, a lot of traders think this market's going to, 40, 30, $20 next year, in which case Aramco definitely is not going to IPO at those kind of prices. So I think that factors into a lot of people's decisions as, as well. So I think there's just too much going on in the market right now and it's too far off that traders aren't really focusing on that as far as making a trading decision. Let's move on now to the topic of geopolitical risks. Obviously, we've talked about this quite a bit in recent weeks, but these situations keep evolving. And I'll tell you, something that, that is puzzling to me is it seems as though the market has decided that the Iran risk in particular has just gone away. Uh, I don't think it's gone away. What I see in the news flow suggests that there's plenty of risk there. Anas Alhaji, what's your take, not just on Iran, but geopolitics generally? Well, in general, we always have the same stories, the same countries like uh, Iran, Venezuela, Libya, Nigeria. But now we have a new story, which is kind of a really interesting story out of Argentina. We've seen the elections on Sunday, 
and the leftist might win the presidency. And if the rules basically of the game for investors and foreign investors change in Argentina, that's not going to only affect the oil production in Argentina. It's going to affect shale oil production because everyone is focusing on Argentina as the possible next example outside the United States. And probably there is a shale revolution and what we can learn about it. Uh, Leftists might end up killing that revolution. And that means a reduction in Argentina's production. The end result of that is probably the IEA and OPEC will be forced to revise down their numbers for non-OPEC production in 2020 and 2021. We already have confirmation that they, they must revise down Brazil's production. And now we are adding Argentina to the mix. Joe McMonagle, what's your take on geopolitical risks, Argentina and Iran and all the rest? Yeah, I mean, I think the election and this uh, recent election in in Argentina, I think, has warning signs on on a number of levels. Uh, but at least for energy purposes, uh, I agree with Anas. I mean, I think it would definitely impact uh, non OPEC production. It would, uh, I think, number one, you'd have countries rethinking plans for Argentina. You know, that was you know the Christina Kirchner. Uh, you know, was the the president who sort of nationalized uh, YPF and, and forced it uh, away from, from Repsol. Uh, eventually, the, the government had to pay for it. So I think it would raise a lot of alarm bells. But more significantly, I think it would, it would probably impact the outlook for developing the, the shale regions in, in Argentina. And uh, it's sort of surprising that, uh, you know, with her on the ticket, that, that they were able to garner you know, the votes that they were, but, you know, the election isn't until October. That's not a lot of time, but, but uh, hopefully, uh, and, and there's, there's going to be, I think, some blame going around who's to blame for the, uh, the currency devaluation. And so we'll have to see how it plays out, but uh, certainly wouldn't be good news, I don't think, from an energy perspective, at least, um, you know, if the leftists got in there. I would just add on the, on the geopolitical front also, I agree. I, I, I think, you know, the situation hasn't gotten any better with Iran and in the Straits of Hormuz. Um, I mean, you know, the oil market yawns at Iran's uh, misbehavior. I can assure you that the U.S. is paying close attention to what's going on. I think we're, you know, we're kind of at a nice edge of some incident. So far, there hasn't been anything that has, you know, that there's been a loss of life on either side. But I, I don't think you can sort of take that off the table. I think it's it's a very risky, fraught situation. And I think Iran sees, as I pointed out in previous um, podcasts, I think Iran sees sort of their troublemaking in the Straits and in the region, turning up the heat, if you will, as a, as a way to get the Trump administration to maybe make some concession on on talks so and on sanctions, so I think you know they they're incentivized by this and uh, by what they perceive as Trump not wanting to go to war and also he, him not wanting to you know have higher oil prices. So they, I think they think they have leverage. I'm not I don't, I'm not sure I agree with them on either of those points, but I think they feel that they have leverage, and so I I think that's a situation to keep monitoring. And um, as I pointed out in, in my opening, 
you know, I, I think, you know, the market, you know, is, is downgraded, <laughs> both the Iran exports from the global markets and also the uh, situation in, in the Straits, the troublemaking in, in the Strait of Hormuz. I mean, at best, it's been downgraded. I think, uh, you know, you can make a case that it hasn't been even factored in to prices. And so if there is another incident, there is something where there is a loss of life or something more serious than we've seen to date, the fact that it's not priced in, I think you could see a pretty, you know, uh, corresponding swing in prices. And so I think that's something to keep an eye on. Uh, Lastly, I would just say on Venezuela, we saw the administration took action uh, last week to, in effect, impose secondary sanctions. You know, I think it, it can become more formal in the weeks ahead. I see as Trump, we get closer and closer to Trump's re-election here. I see more pressure building on the administration to take even uh, tougher action, and so I would watch that closely in in Venezuela. Tracy Shukart, what's your take on geopolitical risks? Well, I think that um, we have to start looking actually at the Red Sea as well right now. Right now, uh, Yemeni separatists are gaining ground. Strengthening separatist movement could invoke uh, a strong response from their opponents, plunging Yemen into even a deeper civil war than they already are now. And instability in this region could lead to instability in the Red Sea. We have to be careful about this because you have to realize that, you know, this would also jeopardize Saudi's plans to increase pipeline flows in the Red Sea to avoid exposure in the Iranian conflict. That means risk is not only rising in the Strait of Hormuz, but the Red Sea as well. So I think that's something that we need to keep an eye on. Dr. Anas Alhaji, I want to come back to you to elaborate a little bit more on Argentina. But as we talk about all of these different political risks, geopolitical risks around the globe, uh, I think something that we've noticed is that when there's plenty of oil in inventory in the United States, geopolitical risks aren't that big of a deal because we've got a buffer. On the other hand, when oil is in short supply and we don't have much in storage, suddenly there seems to be a magnifying effect. So at what level do we need to really be concerned about these geopolitical risk factors? Absolutely, Eric. The first one is regarding Argentina. One point we have to be mindful of is we have an election in Guatemala recently and a conservative one. While now in Argentina, we have a leftist. We already have a leftist in Mexico. We already have an extreme leftist in Venezuela. And I think one of the issues that we need to watch is how the continent basically is being split between conservatives and leftists and how that's going to affect the oil policy. One fact is clear. More leftist countries in Latin America are going to empower Maduro, period, which means that the Venezuelan crisis is going to continue until the problem is resolved. It's going to last longer than what most people expect. The other thing is, I agree with Joe that these Iranian Hormuz Strait, uh, uh, I agree with Tracy regarding Yemen and the Red Sea, All of these are major political events influencing oil prices, but these are sleeping giants. And what wakes them up is a major decline in inventories below a threshold. And in the United States, basically, if we go to 400 million barrels, if U.S. commercial inventories go to 400 or below 400, any movement that had no impact on oil prices in recent months will have a very big impact now. 
And as a final topic, I'd just like to add my own update on the topic that I introduced last week when I presented a chart book showing how very much in line with my expectations when President Trump announced essentially starting a uh, currency war, a trade war with China, that caused the back of curve spreads, the time spreads in the WTI term structure to collapse, backwardation coming out of the market. That makes perfect sense if you're expecting a global growth slowdown. But the curious part was the front of curve spreads were blowing out in very, very steep backwardation, uh, unprecedented move really, despite the fact fact that the direction of price was down and normally that correlation would go the other way. Was it really President Trump's tweet or is this one of those cases where correlation doesn't necessarily represent causation? Well, we've seen the exact opposite this week when we had President Trump announce that there would be a delay in the China tariffs. What happened was the back of the curve started trading back up into backwardation and the front of the curve sold off sharply, backwardation coming out of the front of the curve. The front of the curve action that doesn't make any sense to me. It's almost as if somebody thought that the China currency war was going to result in a sudden shortage of supply where there wouldn't be any oil left in Cushing, Oklahoma. Why would that be? I can't figure it out. If any of our listeners can, please send us an email. Meanwhile, we need to wrap up this week's show. And again, remember, folks, this will be our last show for August. We're going to take a two-week break to give our production staff a very well-deserved holiday. We'll be back on September 4th, Wednesday, with our regular show schedule after that. Before I let our panelists go, I want to find out what you'll be looking for in not just the week ahead, but the three weeks ahead before our next show. Let's start with Dr. Anas Alhaji. What will you be watching for as the rest of the summer vacation period unfolds? Well, I will watch whether the EIA will remove this closed refinery in Philadelphia or not from its numbers because it is affecting the utilization numbers that it is publishing because that's going to make a big difference. And uh, I will also be watching for strong bullish signs that's going to start a new trend. Of course, that include the uh, kind of a major decline in imports and uh, what's going to happen to storage as a result. Joe McMonagle, what will you be watching for in the weeks ahead? Well, I think uh, as we as we learn, uh, you know, every week when we do this show, we never know what's going to happen. So, uh, you know, certainly we have to keep our uh, a watchful eye, and uh, there could be errant tweets and things like that that could impact markets that we're not even expecting. So, I just throw that out there because it may not be a quiet uh, rest of of August, even though most people are, are are likely on vacation. But I guess in terms of the next three or four weeks. You know, certainly this JMMC meeting in Abu Dhabi on September 12th is something I'll be watching. It'll really be OPEC will will have the spotlight on it again to to be able to talk about the market market conditions and potential options that it can it can take. So I think that will be um, an important uh, meeting for the market, and and I think they'll take full advantage of it. Tracy Shukart, everybody knows Shy Girl never takes a vacation, at least not from Twitter. But what will you be watching for as the weeks uh, unfold for the rest of August? Well, we're headed into roll next week, so um, I'll be you know, watching that, trading that. Uh, so we'll be looking, obviously, every week at the EIA numbers. Also keeping you know a big eye on what is happening geopolitically 
you know, watching all inventory numbers that, that come out, you'd see, you know, actually the, the macro data, you know, I want to see where we're at and what these yield curves are, are going to do. And finally, before we let you go, please, Dr. Anas Alhaji, tell our listeners how they can follow your work, your Twitter handle, and so forth. Okay, on Twitter, it's uh, at Anas Alhaji, A-N-A-S-A-L-H-A-J-J-I, which is my first name, last name. The same thing for my website, anasalhaji.com, and they can find my recent columns, especially the one on market management and the role of OPEC. Joe McMonagall, where can we follow your work? You can watch me on Twitter, watch my, my tweets on Twitter, at Joe McMonagall, my first and last name, as, as Anas said. And also at hedgeye.com on the website, we frequently post excerpts of uh, not just my notes, but other analyst notes. So it, it would be uh, not just for me, but for other Hedgeye uh, market analysis, uh, go to hedgeye.com. And Tracy Shikerl Shukart. Um, Shy Girl, I'm on Twitter at Shy Girl, and shygirl.com is my, is my website. And that spelling is C-H-I-G-R-L, like Chicago Girl. That's a wrap for, we'll call it season one before our, uh, our August break. We'll be back on September 4th with our regular show schedule. Until then, everybody enjoy a fantastic holiday. We've still got some really exciting content on the Macro Voices feed. Some of it's pre-recorded for our Thursday evening shows. Monetary policy special coming up with Danielle DiMartino Booth and Peter Bookfar. So be sure to check that out, and we'll see you in September. For the Macro Voices Podcast Network, I'm Eric Townsend. this edition of Macro Voices. Be sure to tune in each week to hear feature interviews with the brightest minds in finance and macroeconomics. Please register your free account at macrovoices.com. Once registered, you'll receive our free weekly research roundup email containing links to supporting documents from our featured guests and the very best free financial content our volunteer research team could find on the internet each week. Also gain access to our free research library. And the more registered users we have, the more we'll be able to recruit high-profile feature interview guests for future programs. So please register your free account today at macrovoices.com if you haven't already. You can subscribe to Macro Voices on iTunes to have Macro Voices automatically delivered to your mobile device each week free of charge. Macro Voices is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Macro Voices should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Macro Voices are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Macro Voices, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Macro Voices.